Thanks for coming out to this beautiful space. We lost all of our lovely light that we had earlier today, so we'll have to make our own light, I guess. Um, I'm really happy to be here with you. Thank you for having me. And uh, I look forward to our, uh, our time together tonight. Let me just get my modern technology, my medieval technology going up here. Oh, and it's going to tell me I need to log on to, uh, to your network. So I'm going to play with that for a moment to make sure that does not happen. There we go. Well, this is a continuation of a series on three polar pairs that I argue we separate, but that medieval Christians kept united. Faith and reason, logic and love, which is tonight's topic, and the spiritual and the material. And uh, for any of you who heard the first, how many people were in the first talk? Okay, well, I apologize. You may want to just look at your email or check your sports scores or something for a few minutes because I'm going to repeat a little bit of the introduction that we did. But when you hear me turn that corner to love and logic, that's when we're getting to the new material. So if you want to get up and go get a coffee or something like that, that's fine. I won't be offended. Um, First, I'll be beginning tonight, as I did this morning, with an introduction to the book project from which this topic, uh, all of these topics are arising. Um, And I'll include a sketch, a bit of a sketch of modern evangelical Protestantism and a little bit of a sketch of C.S. Lewis. So if you heard me this morning, again, you'll find these few minutes uh, familiar, but we'll get quickly to the topic uh, for the evening. Uh, I also want to note that in this second talk, uh, even more than in the first, we'll be entering the medieval world through the guidance of that logical and warm-hearted teacher, C.S. Lewis. So if you're a Lewis fan and you wondered when I was going to get to looking more closely into the Oxford Don's thought in life, the answer is now. But before we enter our topic through the wise guidance of Lewis, I'd like to start again tonight with a familiar word from Jesus. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder which I'm stretching a little to talk about these three pairs, figuring that Paul used it, marriage to refer to the church, because Jesus, of course, was referring to marriage there, so I'll stretch it out a little bit longer. I do believe that we can tend in our modern church culture to separate love and logic and to go in one of two directions, indulging perhaps in either fuzzy-headed anti-intellectual sentimentalism or cold self-righteous argumentation. Of course, nobody here does either of those things. But today I'm going to push back against those tendencies and I'm going to explore a little bit how medieval faith, as I'll argue, robustly unites affective devotion, a religion of the heart, and theologically informed inquiry. And I'm going to suggest that we find in medieval faith um, a unified path that draws both head and mind, uh, heart and mind to God and provides satisfaction both to loving desire and logical questioning. So that's where we're heading. Now, uh, for those who weren't here this morning, a few words again on the project from which these talks come. Uh, this book, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians, Finding Authentic Faith in a Forgotten Age with C.S. Lewis. I wanted to see what it would be like to write a 16th century book title. Uh, It just sort of goes on and on. But I didn't want to leave C.S. Lewis out because he's very important in this book. He's really present at every stage and in every chapter. I started working on the book years ago because of a lack in my own experience of trying to live as a Christian in evangelical Protestant circles in modern North America. I love the evangelical movement. Thank you so much, George. I love the evangelical movement for its clear-eyed presentation of sin and salvation, and I owe to it my own 
uh, conversion to Christianity and uh, service and training, early training in um, uh, Christianity. But when I go to the movement for help in understanding life in the world, the natural world, the cultural world, the world of marriages and workplaces and farms and cities and novels and movies, politics and science, I found too often that there was just no there, there. As James Davison Hunter and Mark Knoll have also observed, uh, evangelicals are often absent from the cultural places where we study to understand these things. In short, though evangelical Protestantism does really well in a certain spiritual band of life and picks uh, a few issues of private and public morality to concentrate on and engage, it seems to ignore significant swaths of human experience. So when I went knocking on evangelical doors to ask how to live well in the world while also living well in God, I sometimes found no one home. Well, why is this? Why has evangelicalism stripped away the world-embracing engagement and cultural fertility of earlier forms of the faith? I think of the museums and, and uh, art museums of our West full of the artifacts of art and science that were done by Christians and done in a mode of devotion to God. And I wonder why we've moved away from that. We don't have time for the whole story of disengagement, but I would argue that the distrust of culture started uh, for many Protestant streams in those radicalized early reformers who tore down church art, smashed statues, nailed shut organs. And it intensified in the popular revivalists of the American frontier who sometimes reduced the rich story of salvation to something that be quickly presented before an altar call and uh, allowed, uh, promoted uh, unschooled folk to the ministry without even a day of training. In the book, I also treat this whole question of evangelical anti-traditionalism with more nuance than I can do here. But the word that I use when I'm talking about this is immediatism, immediatism. By this, I mean that evangelicals have long believed that the most central thing we should know as Christians is that each of us can go directly, individually, and without any mediation from human leaders or material sacraments to the throne of God. Evangelical immediatism takes two shorter ways to God. First, it says we can experience him directly in worship, no matter what forms we use for that worship, but the plainer and the more direct and the more uh, accessible and popular, sometimes the better. And second, it says that we can understand him directly through reading the Bible, which communicates revelation to us clearly without complication and without the need for traditional helps. And if you're doing uh, biblical studies or theology, you've already seen some of the complications that really do come when we start to try to understand the, the the coherent and the full message of the canonical scriptures. But in light of those two moves, all the traditions handed down to us are unnecessary. We don't need carefully crafted liturgies or confessional statements of doctrine or well-worked out church polities or disciplines in order to worship God well. We don't need to read wise old theologians to interpret and understand that the truths that God communicates so plainly in scripture to anyone who cares to open a Bible. In light of immediatism, 
We take it that God is simply not interested in mediating structures inside the church. And in a related logic, he's even less interested perhaps in the ordinary world of workplaces again and cities and literature and science. He only wants individual hearts and minds to come to him and be saved. In the narrow and perhaps super spiritual faith of the immediatist, word and world are torn asunder. So a rhetorical question, and I think I've already implied the answer just by the title of my book. Um, Is there any time in history when the church has done a very good job of keeping together word and world, faith and reason, love and logic, the spiritual and the material? And I would argue that the answer is so obvious that if we weren't willfully turning away and closing our eyes to it, it would smack us in the face. During the thousand years of the Middle Ages from roughly 500 to 1500 AD, the Christian tradition, while deeply committed both to direct mystical encounter with God and to clear understanding of scripture, also understood that our life with God is in fact mediated through human art and artifice and indeed through every aspect of our lives in the world. And so along with their more directly religious pursuits as we would think of them, medieval Christians um, lavished their attentions on the ways of nature and the ways of culture. There is no such thing as a golden age, of course. Medievals got some things wrong, even as they got some things very right. But they took such strikingly earthy and practical and at the same time deeply spiritual approaches to being human in a God-made world, that if we just turn our faces again toward this age of faith as it was and open our eyes, we may find in that forgotten age a source of authentic renewal. Now, I've been nourished in my own faith by reading medieval authors in translation. My 15-year-old son knows a lot more Latin than I do, but fortunately there are a lot of good English translations of medieval sources. And part of the way that I came to those authors was actually through reading C.S. Lewis, who I take actually to be one of the most medieval modern authors. While many Christian leaders today remain narrowly focused on souls and salvation, devotions and missions, all of which are excellent things, taking their faith out of the world perhaps only to engage a few carefully selected issues. Lewis lived and taught an everyday theology that engages the world and human nature and ordinary morality in a deeper and more practical and more livable way. In Lewis, I discovered a spirituality of ordinary life that reveled in the things of nature and the things of culture, both for what they are in themselves and for how they point to God. And so when I encountered that fairly late in life, I had two questions. My first was, how can I get that? And my second was then, how did he get that? Because again, I look around at my church today and I don't always find this theology or spirituality of ordinary life. Here's the thing, I think the answer to the second question, where he got it, leads to a very important answer to the first, how can we get it? Because Lewis himself got this sacramental view of ordinary things, sacramental meaning that grace is accessible to us, not automatically, not by a guarantee, but often through tastes of God's glory or his presence or his grace in the ordinary things of life. 
He, because he got that view in, uh, by immersing himself deeply in the Christian tradition, especially the early and medieval parts of that tradition. That's just exactly where we can get it to. As a professional medievalist, Lewis read medieval authors, well, professionally, but he also read them personally, spiritually. In a word, he became captivated by the holism of their way of seeing the world. And it began to, ch- began to change the way he saw and the way he lived in many areas. You have a handout. Uh, if you don't, there's some back there. And it indicates eight different themes throughout this book. In each of these areas, Lewis saw a kind of uh, a, a preciousness, a kind of a value in his own day to the degree where he even called himself a kind of like a medieval man born out of time. In the engaging introduction to his weightiest scholarly tome, 16th century literature, Lewis observed that medievals spoke in one breath of great universals such as justice, honor, and friendship, and the next of earthy particulars such as pigs, boots, and boats, with no sense of incongruity. For the medievals, spiritual and material, sacred and secular, interwove in one single seamless sacramentally charged world. And so it was too for Lewis. Again, he whimsically characterized himself in a speech at his inauguration as the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University in 1954, not merely as a scholar of the medieval world, but as a medieval native, as if he had been born there, as I said. Before we move on, into the topic of the evening, let's address one more question. My argument is that this modern author, Lewis, got his holistic and world-embracing way of seeing and living largely from the medievals, and so can we. But one more question, where did they get it? In doing research for this book, I've become convinced that medievals got their sense of the interwovenness of faith and reason love and logic, the spiritual and the material, one might say justice and pigs, from a powerful theological place. They got it from dwelling in the amazing fact of the incarnation. The incarnation of the second person of the Trinity as a human being should blow our minds and change our world. In our hurry, however, to reach the cross and the resurrection, We today are inclined to skip over this amazing central fact of the Christian story. Think of this, what might it do for you if you lived in constant awareness of the historical fact that the greatest universal of them all, God himself, came down into the particular concrete material cultural space of first century Palestine as a baby born in a cold, dark, and dirty stable and then lived out the very same material, emotional, social, human life you're living right now. I want to suggest that if you did that, if you meditated in some way daily on the stunning fact of the incarnation, you would never again see any part of your work life, your home life, or any other part of your life in the world as spiritually irrelevant or beside the point of your faith. And every part of your experience would become at least potentially a conduit and a mediator in a sense to God. 
The whole argument of my book is that when we follow Lewis in reading and absorbing Boethius, Francis of Assisi, Thomas Aquinas, Lady Julian of Norwich, and then the Canterbury Tales and Dante's Divine Comedy. Every one of them available, by the way, again, in good English translations. We will find them soaked in this incarnational and holistic worldview. And if we absorb this worldview from them, then we will gain a new sense of how to live fully human lives, embracing every corner uh, as long as it is good, as long as it is acceptable and true of our material and cultural world as an active arena of God's concern and God's work. We'll come to see that working for IBM, bringing the neighbor kids to a ball game, reading a novel, painting a painting, serving on the PTA, researching microbes in a lab. Of course, we could go on and on. In short, everything we do in our ordinary Monday to Saturday lives is a single sacramental unity in which faith and reason, love and logic, the spiritual and the material interpenetrate and uphold each other. All right, having laid the groundwork, let's turn now to the topic of tonight's lecture. I take C.S. Lewis to be both an admirer and exemplar of the medieval world's unified approach to head and heart against a very disunified approach that he found in his own day and that I would argue has become perhaps even worse today. In the full modernity and philosophical materialism of the mid-20th century scientific age, the world had become fully and truly disenchanted. The last traces of a medieval view of the world as tingling with anthropomorphic life, as Lewis put it, had receded with what we might call the triumph of 20th century modernism over the romanticism of the 19th century. Uh, Lewis puts this final decline just after Jane Austen. In his own day, all that remained in Western culture, Lewis believed, was the mechanistic Newtonian universe of the scientists, which sees our world and its human inhabitants as nothing more than a bunch of atoms stuck together, albeit in some pretty intricate ways. And you may know that as a young officer in the First World War, and then as a young teacher at Oxford, he decided to lay aside all the mystery and wonder of romantic youth and the Christianity that had lain uneasily alongside it for him and adopt a new look, as he called it, of scientific atheism. He decided that the Christian faith of his upbringing was intellectually untenable, illogical, and at the same time, almost in the same motion, he gave precedence to his logical mind and to the all-important material world of so-called facts that logic and reason could process and understand. Though it pained him, he had seen no way of bringing together his heart, long subject to unutterable yearnings triggered by poetry and landscapes and myths and songs, with his rational, logical side, so carefully trained in the tradition of Greek logic and philosophy under his brilliant Irish tutor, Kirkpatrick. The logician in him had told him that while stories might serve to amuse, they couldn't very well teach you about the things that really matter in the world. Now, 
<clears throat> let's compare this experience of Lewis's to our current situation, even in the churches today. What I will suggest is our own still quite similar tendency to divide logic from love. I've suggested that this division runs in two directions. See if you can recognize them. I'll bet that most of us have actually seen them both and in honesty may have inclinations or temptations towards one or the, one or the other. The first tendency, whether a full-blown mania or just a leaning, makes the gospel primarily a matter of head knowledge and argument. This brand of faith sometimes seems to be more interested in being right than righteous as it arrays all of its argumentative force to protect its pet positions. The worst offenders are the camp of Christian immediatists I mentioned in the first lecture who believe that God has laid out every particular truth we should believe in the most clear, direct, and definitive terms for all who would simply read their Bibles. If someone disagrees or points out an area of seeming complexity or difficulty, these folks double down on the absolute clarity and truth of their system, insisting it is the one and only biblical one. The other tendency proudly declares against those who they would call dried out intellectuals that the Christian faith is not about mere cold head knowledge, but rather a warmer sort of heart knowledge. These are the camp of the immediatists of experience. They insist that no particular study or teaching is needed for us to know God, not even careful study of scripture, but we can get all we need by going directly to the throne of God through private prayer or public worship. This sounds good, but if it's not careful, this Christian camp throws out reason altogether and stumbles into, again, a fuzzy-headedness or into ditches of inconsistency and self-contradiction. Each of these modern Christian camps, in short, in its own way, preserves the truth, I will admit, but also misses the richness of the gospel that addresses us not as brains on sticks or not as hearts without minds, but as full individuals, head and heart together, and indeed as a full people, a community. And therefore, each puts us in particular danger of doing violence to the intricate unity of the Christian biblical witness with its delicate dance of exposition and narrative history and poetry, pastoral admonition, and spiritual guidance. Now, I find it quite interesting in light of this reality, both of, <clears throat> excuse me, of Lewis's day and his own personal experience, and of our day as well, <clears throat> this modern tendency to wall off our heads from our hearts, that it was precisely the breaking down of this very wall in Lewis that finally allowed him to convert to Christianity. Famously, during a night conversation on a, a walk in the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford, J.R.R. Tolkien showed Lewis, the young professor, how these two sides of himself could be reconciled through the story told in the Gospels. The Gospels had all the great qualities of human storytelling, but they portrayed a true event. In them, God the storyteller entered his own story in the flesh and brought a joyous conclusion from a tragic situation. Suddenly, Lewis could see that the nourishment he'd always received from great myths and fantasy stories was a taste of that greatest and truest story of, again, 
the incarnation of the second person of God in the human person, Jesus Christ, and all that followed that momentous event. The fact that this revelation came in the form of a new and quite emotional and imaginative insight into the incarnation is a very significant fact indeed. And that turning point insight would deepen through his studies of the Middle Ages, an era that fairly bathed in reflection on and devotion to the incarnation. The historian Yaroslav Pelikan says, the incarnation was the linchpin of medieval theology. The life, the incarnation, the work of Christ was central. The gospels are kind of the canon within the canon, especially for the high and late medieval period from about 1,000 to 1,500. So through those medieval studies, professionally and personally, Lewis came to engage both theologically and devotionally with the Christian story of the God-man Jesus and to see in that story a validation and an elevation of our full humanity as not only thinking but also feeling and sensing beings. While he saw that the exercise of reason can bring us to propositional truth, he came to believe that only the exercise of the imagination, a path that yes, engages us cognitively, but also emotionally and even with our senses, only that can bring us to the living meaning of who we are and who God is. There's a distinction there between truth, which we know through reason, and meaning for living, what we might call practical wisdom that comes, yes, through the mind, but also through the imagination, as Lewis would argue. So, at the center of Lewis's sympathy for the medieval way of seeing the world was a particular understanding of how a person's emotion can move them along a specific path to God. As a Christian, Lewis would develop an apologetic argument that we experience an unfulfilled desire that cannot be filled by any worldly pleasure. And this empirical fact indicates to us that there is a God who can and very much wants to fulfill that desire. And this line of reasoning emerged very much from his own experience of his path to salvation. Let's look a little closer though. To this conversion experience, as to all his experiences, Lewis applied a strong set of philosophical and literary filters. That's just who he was. He was always kind of a professor, even before I think he was one. None of these filters was stronger than the Neoplatonic language of desire embedded in the teachings of the late fourth and early fifth century theologian who became so dominant in the whole millennium of the Middle Ages. Augustine is of Hippo. And we'll come back to both Augustine and Neoplatonism shortly. When Lewis talks about both his own movement toward faith and the usual human process of conversion, he speaks of this as a Neoplatonic and Augustinian quest, again, of desire. As Lewis well knew, in this Neoplatonic tradition, Christianized by Augustine and others, when created things are given existence by God, they are instilled with eros, with desire. I know some of you have been reading The Four Loves, so you've been talking about this. And that eros causes them to desire to be whole or to become like the idea that God has of them. One of the places Lewis was first touched by the medieval unity of love and logic was in reading a man I was mentioning uh, in this morning's talk, the Christian philosopher poet Boethius, who's just on the hinge of the Middle Ages. Boethius 
had been a civil servant, a Roman senator at the turn of the sixth century when the Roman Empire was transitioning to a set of states under a group of Germanic kings. And he'd been working for one of these kings, a man named Theodoric, and writing popular textbooks and Latin translations of Aristotle when he was accused and jailed, uh, it seems unjustly, and as it turned out, eventually executed. So he's sitting there in jail and Boethius is trying to figure out what's gone wrong. As far as he knew, he'd been living a pretty righteous life. He's been trying to serve his king and his country well, yet fortune has turned against him, stripping him of his position, his property, and his freedom. So he had these Job-like questions. Lewis, when asked by the Christian century not long before his death, what are the books that most influenced your sense of vocation and your philosophy of life? responded with a list of 10. And one of these is Boethius' book, The Consolation of Philosophy, which he wrote in jail, awaiting execution. And it was probably one of the most read books outside of the Bible through the entire millennium of the Middle Ages. It was retranslated again and again. Now Lewis, um, There may be many reasons that he chose that book when asked that question by the Christian century. But at the heart of them was, again, this Christianized Neoplatonism, this Augustinian view that he found in that book. He shows the nature of his debt to this early medieval writer on the very first page, Lewis did, of his own allegorized spiritual autobiography, The Pilgrim's Regress. If you look at that first page, there are two quotations there, actually three. One is by Richard Hooker, the Anglican theologian. The first two are by Plato and Boethius. And together they make the same point about how people on the path to truth and the good life proceed through a kind of desire. And this again became Lewis's first argument about the nature of our movement to God. And we see this same debt to Boethius in the second argument that Lewis built on the first, which was, as he put it, that, quote, all creatures become more themselves, attain more happiness, and are more fully actualized the more they look to and act like God. That is, the more they exercise creaturely participation in divine attributes. Boethius' character, Lady Philosophy, had similarly argued, drawing from Augustine, that we can realize our proper nature only through union with the sum of all good and the source of all happiness, God himself. Thus, God is the true end of the, the desires that we pursue in partial and flawed ways through things like money, high office, fame, pleasure, beauty. Lewis really wanted his modern hearers to understand these truths that so powerfully united love and logic. But he found that modern Christians had largely abandoned the language of desire and love that, as we'll see, even the most cerebral of medieval thinkers, people like Anselm and Abelard, had used as a matter of course when writing theology. His most memorable pushback against this modern problem came in the sermon, The Weight of Glory. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, Lewis said, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, they would have replied, love. You see what has happened? A negative term 
has been substituted for a positive, and this is of more than philological importance. Of course, Lewis goes on to say the New Testament does contain injunctions to take up our crosses, to deny ourselves. <clears throat> so it's not, the story is not all about desire. But he insists nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so, if we deny ourselves and take up our crosses, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Following Augustine again, Lewis memorably concluded, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. Typically earthy Lewis imagery. Now, by way of beginning to turn the corner from Lewis to his medieval sources, we need to look for just a moment at how the theologian most revered throughout the medieval millennium and most influential on Lewis, Augustine, had picked up this same language of desire. Augustine, remember, was the turn of the fifth century North African rhetoric teacher, sex addict, and then Christian convert, who in his own spiritual memoirs famously cried out to God, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And less famously, but more startlingly, inebriate me, O God. This is certainly the language of desire. And such a full-hearted, even romantic appeal or approach to the God of all things must have seemed in Augustine's elite educated Roman circles quite unexpected. For though there were plenty of Christians in the empire by Augustine's day, the philosophers working in the Roman Empire's dominant educated Greek tradition had always tended to see their God in terms of somewhat sterile negation, immutability, inscrutability, passionlessness. But Augustine, who became the most influential theologian again of the Middle Ages, espoused a different way of talking about God and humanity. This was a Christianization of a classical philosophy called, or philosophical approach called eudaimonism. $50 word, Greek word, for the, simply the concept of happiness, eudaimonia. Classical philosophers had asked, what makes human beings truly happy? Augustine and other early and medieval Christian eudaimonists answered out of the ubiquitous scriptural language of desire and reward that you just heard Lewis talking about in that sermon excerpt. They said, we are made truly happy only when God fulfills both his promises and our desires by giving us his loving presence. According to Augustine and others in this stream, the key to happiness is to want again the one right thing which is God himself. This is no fuzzy-headed sentimentalism. It is a statement about our whole being and our whole purpose. To be clear, this language of desire and fulfillment <clears throat> had two sources. And both of them, I believe, united love and logic to a high degree. 
One was the same Neoplatonism we've already seen in Boethius, who spoke of an ecstatic path of return to God, who is the source of all of us and all things. And the other, which Boethius was influenced by as well, was the early Christian tradition itself, which was from the beginning deeply interwoven with Greek thought. Robert Louis Wilkin reminds us in his wonderful book, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, that, quote, nothing was more characteristic of the Christian intellectual tradition from its very beginning than its fondness for the language of the heart. Even in the most dense and abstract theologizing of the early and medieval fathers, the goal was not only understanding, said Wilkin, but love. To see how early this tendency begins, one need only turn to the very first systematic commentator on the Christian Bible, Origen of Alexandria, 185 to 254. Origen, classically trained and no slouch in a logical argument, interpreted the Song of Songs as an allegory of the believer's relationship with God, erotic emotions and all. In Origen's reading, the song's male lover is God or Christ, The female lover is Israel, or the church, or the believer. Augustine, Gregory the Great, and a long line of medieval interpreters would pick up Origen's approach to the Song of Songs, using similar romantic and even sexual language for our desire for God. As Gregory would muse, Gregory the Great, referring to our relationship with Christ, what force of love exists in the bedchamber of the bridegroom? These writers knew that the comparison of our love with Christ to married love has the highest biblical authority. Think, for example, of Paul's allegorical treatment of the church, comparing it, again, to marriage in Ephesians 5. Or of the book of Hosea, in which Hosea becomes a living object lesson of God as the husband who takes his adulterous wife back again and again. Or indeed, of the many passages in the major prophets that speak of Israel as God's beloved. But now we turn to the devotional and mystical writers of the medieval period who absorbed and expanded this vision of love. We'll look briefly at several whom Lewis particularly appreciated and learned from. Bernard of Clairvaux, Francis of Assisi, and a trio of English mystics, Richard Roll, Walter Hilton, and Julian of Norwich. I can only speak briefly of each one, but just a a bit of a sketch here. Probably best known today for hymns such as O Sacred Head Now Wounded and Jesus the Very Thought of Thee, Bernard of Clairvaux, 1090 to 1153, was by any measure a formative figure in medieval devotion. He was a reforming monk of the Cistercian order of Benedictines, and he returned to the simplicity of the rule of St. Benedict, preached to recruit participants in the Second Crusade in 1146, and later in life held so much power in the church that he was virtual pope. Throughout his career, Bernard's teaching focused on love in a positive, personal vein, but not a sentimental one. He talked about the relationship between the self and God. Borrowing a good deal from Augustine, Bernard presents four degrees of this love in his treatise on loving God. First, The self loves only itself. Second, the self begins to love the neighbor and God, but again, only for its own sake. Third, the self learns to love God purely for God's own sake. And finally, which really only happens for most folks in the next life, 
The self comes to love itself for God's sake. Following in the thousand-year-old tradition of origin, Bernard preached for 18 years on the Song of Songs, spending eight sermons on chapter one, verse two alone. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. In each sermon, he takes the erotic metaphors of the poem to describe the joys of spiritual intimacy with God. What a close and intimate relation this grace produces between the divine word and the soul, and what confidence follows from that intimacy you may well imagine, he wrote. I believe that a soul in such condition may say without fear to God, my beloved is mine. In the fourth of these sermons, Bernard elaborates on the verse, let, me kiss him, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, with a reflection on our progress towards intimacy with God, in which we move, he says, uh, kind of winsomely, from the kiss of the feet, which is kind of the, the way of penitence, to the kiss of the hand, which is the illuminative way, the way of knowledge, to the kiss of the mouth, the unitive, the final mystical goal of personal union with God. Throughout his preaching, Bernard emphasizes the importance of the human Jesus for Christian spirituality, pushing high and late medievals further into their fascination with the gospel accounts. In his 20th sermon on the Song of Songs, Bernard argues that the incarnation was actually for this purpose, to attract our affections. Lewis deeply appreciated Bernard. In Lewis's allegory of love, he cited Gilson's La Théologie Mystique de Saint-Bernard, and in his essay, Transposition, he drew from Bernard's use of marriage as an image of the human soul's relationship to Christ to argue that, quote, we need to make, take metaphors from everyday life to describe the nuances of spiritual experience. Lewis's copies of Gilson's Bernard book and a biography of Bernard, I've seen them both in the Marion Wade Center at Wheaton where I work, are carefully annotated along with many others of his copies of medieval books. Now, Francis of Assisi. Francis, on top of his all his other distinctions, gave this love tradition within Christianity a great boost in the 13th century. For non-historians, 13th century, that's the 1200s. The sheer ubiquity of the evangelizing teaching movement that he started ensured that anything he emphasized would deeply penetrate the Christian culture of that century and many centuries to come. By the latter part of the 13th century, almost every town of any size had a community of friars minor, which is what the Franciscans called themselves. Within 50 years of the saint's death, there were more than 50 such communities in uh, England alone and more than 500 in Italy. No influence shaped popular devotion in the high and late Middle Ages more than the Franciscans. They reached into the psyche of the people, appealing to them directly through art, literature, and impassioned preaching on the homely details of the nativity and the stark and gritty narrative of the passion. The Franciscans taught that tears were a gift from God, cleansing and cathartic, a worthy daily discipline for those who keep watch, as he said, over the perfection of their life. Francis experienced and acted extravagantly upon an overwhelming passion for the person of Jesus. In his biography of The Little Poor Man, G.K. Chesterton insists that Francis' religion was, quote, not a thing like a theory, but a thing like a love affair. 
Following the tradition of the chivalrous knights and the troubadours of his day, Francis was spurred by this love to extravagant deeds for his beloved. His life, said Chesterton, was one long riot of rash vows. From the beginning of Francis's calling as he roamed the streets begging alms for stones with which to prepare, repair the broken down St. Damien's church, he was so completely absorbed by this new life in Christ, so certain of his vocation and so much aware of divine compulsion that he went about as if in an ecstasy of joy. The chroniclers speak of him at this time as, quote, one drunk with the spirit or as if driven forward by a very intoxication of the divine love. There's that language, again, of inebriation, which Augustine had used of his relationship and his desire for God. Lewis insisted to his friend Arthur Greaves that the Assisian was one of the shining examples of human holiness. He loved the friar's gentle spirit and profound love of nature and was so taken by Francis's habitual name for his own physical body, Brother Ass, that he sometimes used it as a sign-off in his own letters. Now we come to the three late medieval authors in the English tradition, all of them among the mystics whose writings C.S. Lewis loved and recommended to many and rated highly as great and useful Christian books, Richard Roll, Walter Hilton, and Julian of Norwich. Richard Roll, uh, 14th century figure, his spiritual writings are striking for the empirical way he describes the experience of mystical encounter with God. In his book, The Fire of Love, Roll describes actual bodily warmth that he felt while in prayer. John Wesley, eat your heart out, so to speak, if you know about the, hearts, the heart strangely warmed in Wesley's personal history. This is from Roll. I cannot tell you how surprised I was the first time I felt my heart begin to warm. It was real warmth too, not imaginary. And it felt as if it were actually on fire. I had to keep feeling my breast to make sure there was no physical reason for it. As if this weren't enough, Roll also experienced audible song wafting down from heaven. The joyful ring of psalmody. In myself I sensed a corresponding harmony at once wholly delectable and heavenly. The effect of this inner sweetness was that I began to sing what previously I had spoken. Only I sang inwardly and that for my creator. Roll was exuberant in his joy. He spoke and wrote about his experiences, not for educated clerics or monks, but for the simple and unlearned who are seeking rather to love God than to mass knowledge. Walter Hilton was an Augustinian canon, a lay monastic in Nottinghamshire. That means lay monastics were those who were able to uh, live in ordinary life and be married and have ordinary jobs, but also had a kind of quasi-monastic discipline. Lewis marked Walter Hilton's scale of perfection copiously, particularly noting in a jotting in the end leaf Hilton's simile that mere knowledge is like water, but Jesus turns that cold logical water into wine, as he did at the wedding at Cana. Cold naked reason into ghostly light and burning love by the gift of the Holy Ghost. In another passage Lewis marked, Hilton insists that, quote, because he loved us so much, therefore he giveth us his love, that is the Holy Ghost. He is the giver and the gift, and maketh us then by that gift to know and love him. 
Finally, possibly Lewis's favorite devotional writer, and certainly one whom he quotes often in a half a dozen of his books and many more of his letters, is the English anchoress Julian of Norwich. Julian had many visions, which she called showings, as well as the sorts of direct physical evidences of God's love that we also see in Richard Roll. In Julian's words, quote, there will be many secret touches that we will feel and see, sweet and spiritual. Unperturbed by this sensuous intensity in Julian's experience of God, Lewis brings her visions up again and again in his books and letters. In particular, her arresting vision of holding all creation in her hand like a hazelnut and hearing Christ say, all shall be well, struck Lewis as genuine and powerful. He thought it was just the right balance to say that the material world is not evil, as the Manichaeans taught, Augustine's former friends, uh, but merely little. In The Four Loves, Lewis uses Julian's image to show how even the most magnificent things in creation are far beneath God's majesty. Her phrase, all shall be well, appears again and again in such of Lewis's books as The Great Divorce, The Problem of Pain, and his essay, Psalms. As David Downing suggests, Julian seems to be, quote, the sort of person Lewis had in mind when he describes mysticism in the same paragraph where he discusses the hazelnut vision as, quote, wonderful foretastes of the fruition of God vouchsafed to some in their earthly life. Now, I want to acknowledge at this point a question that many of you have no doubt already begun asking yourselves. Don't these medieval mystics look suspiciously like they prized love but left logic to the side. Before I address this question in a moment, I wanna first say a few words about a kind of modern discomfort we may have with medieval mysticism. Certainly this crops up with folks today who encounter medieval figures like Julian. Unlike Lewis, today's readers can seem hesitant sometimes to embrace the English anchoress and her visions. The reasons for this, I think, get close to the heart of modern discomfort with this Christian love tradition we've been talking about. Today, um, Quaker spiritual writer Richard Foster, not today, but recently, describes having taught Julian's revelations of divine love to a classroom of undergraduates. Unlike the other books he assigned, this one sparked a controversy, even an uproar, with students not only disagreeing with each other, but even shouting at one another. Foster was puzzled. Surely this language of devotion was familiar to these students, even from the movies and television of their experience. But Christian devotion seemed an alien concept. Ironic, he thought, given the romanticism, not to say sentimentalism, of much modern music, both secular and Christian. In Julian's words, quote, the Trinity is our everlasting lover, our joy and our bliss through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, in his love, he wraps and holds us. He enfolds us for love, and he will never let us go. Somehow this seemed too much for Foster's students. We found it hard to believe, says Foster, that this relationship of deep, holy intimacy could be right, could be true, could be ours. Puzzling over this, he concluded that our society's eroticized, sexualized concept of love and passion is to blame. 
I've experienced what Foster describes in my own classroom, similar discomfort and controversy when I teach about Julian. And one source of this is that she refers to God, even to Christ, at times, as feminine, a mother to us children. As the translator of the Penguin Edition notes, we may find biblical warrants for this feminizing of God and even Christ. In Isaiah 66, 13, and Matthew 23, 37, but it still makes many Christians uncomfortable. It seems, however, to be a natural development of the Christian love tradition, not just the married relationship that Origen, Bernard, and others used as a metaphor for our relationship to God, but the child-mother relationship, too, is an obviously close, intimate one that can provide a fruitful parallel for our devotions. Perhaps it's even more appropriate than the romantic one, in fact, since Christ is indeed the one through whom we were created, We owe our being to him as we do in a different way to our mothers. And when we return to his arms, it can feel similar to how we felt as children nestling in our mother's arms. And in answer, we have a Jesus who weeps over us, who's nothing like the passionless God of the Greek philosophers. Julian portrays not just her own emotions, but also God's emotions, his thirst and yearning for us, how he is cheered by our prayers and looks for them expectantly. All right, but now, what about that question of the seeming imbalance between love and logic in the medieval mystical tradition, as we're winding up here? Certainly, some modern scholars have told that story. One form in which you often find this in books about the period is a compelling narrative about the supposed clash between warm-hearted monastics uh, and cold-headed scholastic theology. This popular narrative takes the politicized struggle between two 12th century strong personalities, Bernard of Clairvaux, the monk, Peter Abelard, the scholastic, and derives from that its thesis about the relationship between monastic and scholastic thinking and theology. Namely, that the world of medieval theology was divided into fuzzy-headed, warm-headed, hearted monastics who wanted to protect mystery and critically rationalist scholastics who didn't care which sacred cows they slaughtered en route to a more systematic theology. In this story, Bernard of Clairvaux leads the charge against reason as the arch-monastic, and Abelard stands as the champion of reason and systematization. I can't make a full case against this portrayal here, and in any case, it's beyond my competence, but the argument seems to rest on shaky foundations. When you read a scholar who really knows Abelard well, such as David N. Bell of Newfoundland, or who really knows Bernard well, such as John Sommerfeld, one discovers that the supposed critical rationalist Abelard wanted very much to protect the central mysteries of the faith and preserve them, though at times he did use injudicious language to do so. Maybe a low level of emotional intelligence going on as we read the accounts. And that also Bernard was no mystery besotted obscurantist, but rather a master logician who preserved a place for the Christian life of the mind. It is certainly true that not every theological thinker was so taken by the new scientific approach of the scholastics represented by Abelard, and many of the skeptics were, in fact, monastics. Scholastic theology was not the only game in the Middle Ages. 
Benedictine monasticism, born in the seventh century and harnessed to education under Charlemagne in the ninth, created some of the root conditions for scholasticism, but also for a kind of parallel Christian tradition of thought, a monastic devotional stream that was sometimes in significant tension with scholasticism. So when Abelard pushed the claims of logic and dialectic within theology, the Cistercian monk Bernard, himself a great intellect and quite capable of slinging syllogisms with the best of them, objected to that the young, hot-headed young scholastic was endangering the piety of the church. And Bernard did pursue Abelard relentlessly through the political machinery of the church hierarchy. But the division and the antagonism between those two theological approaches, the logical approach, the love-based approach, was never anywhere near so complete as the modern scholastics versus monastics narrative would have it. So where does that divided picture come from? As is usual with questionable history, it comes from presentism. That is the imposition of modern realities and concerns and reading them into the medieval record. First, that warfare story between love and logic fits nicely into the centuries-long modern tension between academics and religious functionaries that still conditions the dialogue between, for example, religion and science in many American universities. This struggle resulted in the nearly unbroken popular sway of Andrew Dixon White's now discredited 100-year-old thesis about the essential conflict in history between, as he puts it, science and theology. Second, the scholastics versus monastic story works well with today's tension between the world of academic theologians abstracted from the church and whose concern appears modern and scientific, resulting in a de-supernaturalized liberal version of theology on the one hand, and then the conservative, especially evangelical body of church folk who inherently suspect any imposition of reason and logic on matters of faith as alien and hostile. So the common evangelical saying about those who've gone off to cemetery, right? That is seminary to learn theology. How convenient to have a story about medieval theology that so nicely illustrates and confirms those modern situations in university and church. What I find representative of medieval thinking, however, is not a war between the logicians and the lovers. Certainly no epic battle, although perhaps a few sporadic skirmishes. But the grand synthesis of, for example, Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas recognized the tensile strength of the Christian faith handed down from the early fathers. The tradition is strong because it hands down not an unreasonable faith, but a faith that is both reasonable, for Aquinas, it's God, for example, can be proved to exist. He had seven different ways of proving the existence of God. But at certain points, that tradition talks about a God who is beyond reason. Again, Trinity, incarnation, and so forth. Aquinas erects on this bedrock commitment a dazzling scientific and philosophical edifice of theology. And he does so as a Dominican friar, from within a deeply devotional and monastic culture, not as a dried out academic. In his very person, he puts the lie to the stereotypical love versus logic narrative, instead joining the two as the Christian tradition had always done. By this unity of love and logic and Aquinas, the pinnacle of scholasticism, this shouldn't surprise us. 
for the father of the scholastic movement himself, Anselm of Canterbury, exemplified it too. We already met Anselm in our first talk as an example of the medieval use of reason in theology. But here we have not an academic speculator, but an abbot actually of a monastery, and a man of powerful and deep devotion, one who kept love at the heart of his logic. Anselm's most read work was probably not the Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man, his reasoned explanation of the atonement. Rather, it was a little book called Prayers and Meditations, designed to stir the hearts and infuse the prayers of his readers with love to God. That book's highly evocative, meditative, imaginative prayers focused on the lives and personalities of Christ, Mary, and the saints, designed for people to use in their private devotions. His stated purpose in publishing these was, quote, to inspire the reader's mind to the love and fear of God and inflame the desire to pray. The reader's mind, note, these prayers were to be read slowly, meditatively, just as the scripture was read in the medieval monastic tradition of the Lectio Divina. Though deeply devotional, this was no wildfire emotionalism. It was a unified approach to God that held both affective experience and cognitive content together in a single theological and devotional gesture. A couple of final observations on this. I know we're out of time. Um, Julian does recognize, as Lewis does, the ways that our emotions can lie to us. She talks about a time in her life when she swung 25 times from depression to joy and back again. And she reflects on this and she says, I should not be made glad by anything specially, nor on the other hand should I be much distressed by anything else, for all will be well, as she had heard God say to her. The fullness of joy is to see God in all things. I'm going to skip over another little example here and conclude. And I want to conclude by bringing us back to Lewis. Having been a philosophically trained atheist who found Christ only when he was able to unite his reasoning and feeling sides, this professional medievalist preserved in his own person the holism that had marked the early and medieval tradition of the religion of the heart at its best. He did this not only in his thinking and his writing, but in his devotional practices as well which increasingly, as he matured in the Christian life, engaged the uh, religion of the heart of the medievals. Starting in 1940, Lewis began regularly following the medieval practice of confessing his sins. He did this every Friday to an Anglican priest and spiritual director named Father Adams. He said the experience was like a tonic to his soul. Adams also helped Lewis love the liturgy, the daily prayer service, praying through the Psalms each month, and experiencing the real presence of Christ in the Eucharistic elements. In his later years, Lewis also, as had the medievals, embraced such traditions as the sacramental view of marriage and the veneration of the cross in Good Friday services. All of this points to a religious practice that was both deeply rooted in tradition and as much of the heart as of the head. Finally, I think that these practices also point the way to one more way he absorbed and lived the medieval unification of love and logic. The single factor that most led medievals to keep head and heart together, addressing God from their full humanity, was this close attention they paid to the incarnation, the enfleshment, the embodiment of God in Jesus Christ.
For when Christ came to earth, he did so as one who shared all the temptations and sufferings, all the thinking and feeling and willing and striving that we as embodied humans share with him as his younger brothers and sisters. The incarnation then becomes not only the doorway to the atonement and thus our justification, it becomes also the pattern for how we, who are now called the body of Christ, are to live unto God in our own lives. We're not to do so as half persons, given over to fuzzy-headed sentimentalism or cold argumentation. For our Lord did not live as a half person either. He did not just teach and reason in exceptional ways, though he did do that. He did not just love and weep over the suffering sheep of his pasture, though he did do that too. Rather, he lived as a whole person who showed us the heights of reason and the depths of love in one life and who therefore set the pattern all of us should follow as we come to him and live for him and in him. The medievals saw this, and Lewis saw it, and may we now see it too and live by it. Thank you.